0: So glad to see you all. Uh, If you are a guest here with us this morning, thanks for being here. My name is Stuart McCrave. The joy of serving on staff is one of the pastors. And uh, we are continuing our series in Esther. So if you'll go ahead and flip to Esther, we're going to be looking at uh, all of chapter four and then uh, the first eight verses in chapter five this morning. So looking at Esther, uh, if you find uh, Job, Job, You find Job, maybe you find the Psalms before Psalms is Job and right before Job is Esther. Um, We're looking at Esther 4. Well, we left this historical account last week with Haman um, uh, and uh, Haman having plotted uh, his evil plan and it now underway and that is to have all of the Jews in the empire massacred. God's people are in a, a hopeless situation and they are in desperate need of God to intervene. God's people need a mediator to intervene on their behalf before the king if they are to be saved. And imperfectly, Esther will be that. Now, there is a a potential danger when we come to uh, narrative accounts. So that's, that's, the majority of the Old Testament, that's a, a good bit of the New Testament with the gospels. There, there's a, there's a, there can be a danger when we come to the narrative accounts and it, and it happens when uh, we're seeking to apply uh, those accounts. Um, our tendency can be when applying the narrative accounts is to see ourselves in the supposed hero and then make a direct line of, ca- uh, of application with that supposed hero with ourselves. The problem with doing that is that we kind of set ourselves up for moralism then, as if the narrative accounts of David and Goliath, or or here, Esther and the king and Haman, that this is like an Aesop fable, right? Where we can think of this, this account that we're going to read today, and we might conclude that this is simply a, you know, be an Esther, choose faith over fear, or we might think, Oh, this is the, uh, just making a direct line to us that this is simply the, well, God has put me where I am for such a time as this, and my, my family, and my neighborhood, and my job. Now, what I'm not saying is that we don't eventually get there to ask such questions or to make such applications. What I am saying, though, is that we must first see who Esther is pointing to. To before we make connections, derivative connections to ourselves. It's only after we see how Esther first points, first and foremost points to Jesus Christ that we can make legitimate derivative connections to us who are following Jesus, who are united to Jesus, and who are empowered to Jesus. Look, ultimately, Esther is not the main character in the story. God is. Esther points to Jesus, the greater mediator. This side of the cross, we know that the whole Bible is all about Jesus. So there's something greater than ourselves and our jobs and in our neighborhoods and in our families that's going on in this text. God's people desperately need a savior. They need a mediator who will intercede for them on behalf of the king. Life and death are in the balance. People needed it then. People need it now. God provided it then. God has provided it now. In Esther chapter four through five, eight, we see four realities of a mediator that point to Jesus as the great mediator for God's people. So there's our outline, four realities of a mediator that point to Jesus. So the first reality is in verses uh, one through eight of chapter four, it's the need of a mediator. So follow along as I read, I'm gonna pause here and there um, our time this morning making comments so uh, chapter 4 verse 1 when Mordecai learned of all that had occurred he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes and went into the middle of the city and cried loudly and bitterly he went only as far as the king's gate since the law prohibited anyone wearing sackcloth from entering the king's gate and there was great mourning among the Jewish people in every province where the king's commanded edict reached they fasted wept and lamented, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So, so Paul's there, so the, the whole empire, to include the Jews, has received the edict that the Jews will be massacred in 11 months. And Mordecai's response is weeping and wailing and anguish. The text says he tore off clothes, he put on sackcloth, and he poured ashes on his head. This is a, this is a common way that the Bible describes Great anguish, great grief. These were were actions. Those who participated in these actions were symbolically entering themselves into death. And and Mordecai isn't the only one either. The Jewish people described that in every providence participated in these ways. Now, Mordecai takes his grief public. He goes into the middle of the city, goes right up to the palace entrance, and presumably he'd have gone inside, except that the law prohibited people who were grieving in this way with sackcloth of coming in. The palace was a place of indulgence and pleasure, and someone someone mourning like that would have just completely messed with the the vibe of the palace. I mean, the king didn't care about what was going on with the problems outside the walls. You, You just keep that out there now because of where mordecai did this in part this serves as a protest against the king but but more than that mordecai is trying to get the attention of his niece esther was the only one that he could conceive of who'd be able to step up and be the mediator that they needed all right let's continue verse four esther's female servants and her eunuchs came and reported the news to her and the queen was overcome with fear. She sent clothes for Mordecai to wear so that he would take off his sackcloth, but he did not accept them. So pause there. Esther learns of Mordecai's actions and our text says that she was overcome with fear. Maybe yours says deeply distressed. Either way, evidently Esther's life was so secluded in the palace that she had no idea what was going on outside of its walls. She, she sure doesn't know what's going on with her uncle either, or, or her or her people. I mean, it's only after Mordecai refuses uh, her change of clothes that it occurs to her, something serious is going on here. So all right, let, let's finish reading verses five through eight. So Esther summoned Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs who attended her, and dispatched him to Mordecai to learn what he was doing and why. So Hathach went to Mordecai in the city square in front of the gate, uh, king's gate. Verse seven, Mordecai told him everything that had happened as well as the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay the royal treasury for the slaughter of the Jews. In verse eight, Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa, ordering their destruction, so that Hathach might show it to Esther, explain it to her and command her to approach the king implore his favor and plead with him personally for her people. Well, Mordecai gets Esther's attention and he wants to inform her of all that's going on. But more than that, he wants to command her as he has always been doing to approach the king, implore his favor and plead with him personally for her people. And and that last part is, is really key. If Esther is to be the mediator that they so desperately need, then she will now have to publicly identify with her people. Right up until this point, she has keeping her true identity hidden as Mordecai had commanded her to do. But but listen, if she won't identify with them, if she won't claim the Jews as her people, then she won't risk the danger that's involved either. Right? Remember here, Esther is the only person in this account that has two names. She has a Jewish name and she has a Persian name. And the former marks her for death, and the latter, seems to be giving her protection and privilege. So will she come out of the shadows, as it were, and throw her lot in with her people? God's people need a mediator who will identify with them and intercede on their behalf before the king. And since Esther points to the greater story in the Bible, this need points to the need that we all have. Since the fall of humanity, sinners like you and me have needed a mediator who will identify with us and intercede on our behalf before the king of the universe. Because of sin, there is hostility between holy God and sinful man. God is justly and righteously angry at sinners, rebels to his throne. Sin is tantamount to cosmic treason. And since the penalty of sin is death, the only just amends is death. In the old covenant, God provided priests to be mediators for his people before him. Here's how the priest's mediation worked. First, the priest had to make an atonement through sacrifice for his own sins to enable him to stand in the presence of God. And then, and only then, would he, could he make atonement through sacrifice for the sins of his people. God's justice was symbolically satisfied by diverting his just wrath for sins, for the sins of his people, on to the atoning sacrifice of bulls and goats. However, Scripture is clear that all of this was ultimately insufficient. The priests themselves were sinners and therefore truly unable to remedy the situation, mediate the situation. They were sinners themselves and the sacrifices they offered didn't truly atone for sin. They were just symbolic. The animal sacrifices the priest offered were God's appointed means that enabled him to pass over the sins of Israel because he knew that the sins of his people would be dealt with in the mediation and atonement of Jesus Christ. Family, we need a mediator. We need a mediator who will identify with us and intercede on our behalf before Holy God. If reconciliation is to be achieved between us and the Holy God, we we need a holy priest who can offer a sacrifice that will actually make just amends for the offense of our sins. Hebrews 2, 14 through 17 says, Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest." In matters pertaining to God to make atonement for their sins. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus, God has provided us the mediator we need. Jesus, the great mediator of God's people, identified with us, stood in the gap between us and holy God, and offered himself as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Amen? Amen. All right, there's. The- there's the first reality of a mediator we see, the need of a mediator. The second reality is in verses nine through 11, and it is the cost of a mediator, the cost of a mediator. So the question is, will Esther identify with her people? If she won't, she won't risk the cost that is involved. Follow along, I'm gonna read verses nine through 11. Eleven. Hathak came and reported Mordecai's response to Esther. Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to tell Mordecai, all the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard who has not been summoned, the death penalty, unless the king extends the golden scepter, allowing that person to live. I have not been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days. Well, no more passive, Esther. She commands Hathach to respond to Mordecai's command. Nope, don't like that. She does not exactly say no. In her mind, she gives a a legitimate, justified reason why she is not going to obey his command. It is certain death for those who approach the king unsummoned to include the queen. Certain death uh, unless the king mercifully, graciously extends his golden scepter. Now, don't be confused. Esther is not trying to tell Mordecai something that he doesn't already know. Mordecai's a government official. He knows the laws of the land. Now, hoping that he'll better appreciate her situation, Esther explains some context that presumably Mordecai doesn't know. And that's the, the honeymoon's over. Right, five years into marriage and her husband, the king, has not summoned her in a month. I, I glossed over it last week, but shortly after they are married, in chapter two, verse 19, we're told that Ahasuerus had had a second gathering of the virgins. We're, we're not told why, but at the least, he's keeping his options open. Esther's position seems tenuous. She knows that Ahasuerus isn't opposed to getting rid of wives. I mean, maybe she's thinking, He got rid of Vashti because she wouldn't come when she was told to. What's he gonna do with me when he figures out that I've been withholding, that I've been omitting, that I've been deceiving about my identity, that I'm actually a Jew? If fear hadn't gripped her before, it does now. In Esther's mind, the potential cost to be the mediator for her people, her life was too high. It's a costly mediation. We talked last Sunday about how Esther is filled with reversals, and we looked at a couple of them. There's a big reversal here between Esther and Jesus, and in particular, the the people whom they would seek to mediate for. The, The people whom Esther was contemplating intervening for were innocent victims who didn't deserve the king of Persia, unjustly pouring out his unrighteous wrath on them. But the people whom Jesus would intervene for were guilty sinners who did deserve the king of the universe, justly pouring out his righteous wrath on. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Again, the penalty for sin is death, and so the only just mediation that will bring about peace is death. It's a costly mediation. Colossians chapter one, 19 through 20 says, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus Christ, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds as expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, thoughtless, and blameless before him. Jesus represented his, his people those who were alienated and hostile in mind expressed in their evil actions. He represented those people before holy God. Jesus mediated between warring parties by satisfying God's just anger for your sin and my sin through his shed blood. And through his shed blood, Brothers and sisters, he took on all of God's wrath for our sin. None remains for you and me. The Bible, Elisha, describes Jesus taking the cup of God's wrath and drinking every last drop. And and where hostility once remained, now, forever, only, peace. Mm. Oh, praise Jesus. He was willing to pay our cost so that we can experience reconciliation and peace with God forever. Amen. All right, second reality here that we see is the cost of a meteor. The third reality is in verses 12 through 17. And this is the provision, the provision of the mediator. So follow along. I'll read verses 12 through 14. So Esther's response was reported to Mordecai. Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your role position for such a time as this." Well, Mordecai gets Esther's response and he immediately turns out uh, a follow-up. And his reply is is, is a hinge point. The hinge point in this account, in this story, It begins with a warning. Esther seems to think that she can hide in plain sight through the the camouflage of her Persian name, but, but Mordecai doesn't buy it. He tells her that at some point, you will be discovered of being a Jew and you will still yet be killed. And not only you, but the rest of your family then as well. Death still looms over her. Now, in that warning, Mordecai also expresses his confidence that even if Esther refuses, the Jews will find relief and deliverance through some other human agent. And and then in verse 14, we, we get what is probably the most memorable line in this whole book. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Between saying this and that relief and deliverance will come from someone, if not from Esther, Mordecai seems to be expressing quiet confidence in God's providence. Again, neither neither God uh, nor his covenant promises are mentioned in this passage, but it is clear that Mordecai is also rejecting chance and coincidence, this may well just be mustard seed faith small small faith faith that can move mountains that's believing perhaps there's a bigger providential work taking place it nevertheless is faith well how will Esther respond Let's read verses 15 through 17. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai: "Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink there. Uh, don't don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish." So Mordecai went and did everything Esther has commanded him. Esther moves from faith to fear. At the beginning of the story, we read a couple weeks back, Queen Vashti would not come even though she was summoned. But now, Queen Esther would be coming even though she was not summoned. Esther is identifying with her people and because she's, because she's willing to go public that she is a Jew, she is willing to pay the potential cost for the mediation involved. Now to identify with God's people is to identify with their God. Again, this too may well be mustard seed faith, but it's a faith that moves her to be the mediator that her people needed. It it is nevertheless faith. Now in in moving from fear to faith, we're starting to see a transformation happen uh, in Esther. She is now giving Mordecai commands. She commands Mordecai to assemble all the Jews in Susa for the purpose of fasting for three days. One one more thing, sort of a a glorious aside, and then we'll we'll move to reflection on these verses. This scene pictures uh, the, the mystery between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. God's providence has Esther at such a time as this. And yet, she's going to have to step up and take faithful steps of obedience. But God providentially works through everything. And in such a way that these things themselves bring about the results we see. We see this in Joseph's response to his brother's actions. You planned evil against me, But God planned it for good. In Esther, God, God, God providentially provided the mediator his people needed. And in Jesus, God has providentially provided the mediator that we needed. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5, Paul writes, when the time came to completion, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoptions as son. I son. Mean, we're, we're talking about 400 years between the end of the Old Testament to Jesus' birth. 400 years of, of silence. Maybe what's more, I mean, we're talking about a couple thousand years from creation to the birth of Jesus. But when God determined that the right time had come, he providentially provided Jesus to save his people. It wasn't our plan to provide Jesus. It's God's plan. God's providence is always at work, behind the scenes, like a, like a hidden hand, bringing about all that comes to pass according to his wise and good plan. Likewise, God's providence in our life can feel like long silence. We don't always feel like his hidden hand is bringing the deliverance that we we want. But the same God who provided a mediator then is the same God who has provided us a mediator now. And if he did not spare his own son, but provided Jesus for us, how will he also not with Jesus provide all we need for life and godliness? He will, we can trust him. All right, that's the third reality of a mediator we see. It's the provision of a mediator. And then the fourth and final reality of a mediator is in chapter five, the first eight verses. It's the boldness of a mediator. Follow on with me as I read the first two verses. On the third day, Esther dressed in her royal clothing and stood in the inner court of the palace facing it. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the royal courtroom facing its entrance. As soon as the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courtyard, she gained favor with him. The king extended the golden scepter in his hand toward Esther and she approached and she touched the tip of the scepter. Let's pause there. So they fasted for three days, and now Esther approaches the king in full regalia, is owning everything about this, her, her being the queen. She's gonna be owning that she is a Jew in due time. And in God's providence, she gains favor with him. Ahasuerus extends, extends his golden scepter graciously, mercifully. In Jewish tradition, the third day symbolizes a day of deliverance. And so Esther's acceptance by the king is foreshadowing the deliverance that she will bring to her people. All right, let's keep reading verse 3. Well, what is it, Queen Esther? The king asked her, whatever you want, even half the kingdom will be given to you. The, the king's expression is an idiom commonly used by ancient royalty. And it simply means that the, the, the king was, was eager to, to be very generous all right, let's finish reading out this section four through eight. Well, if it pleases the king, Esther replied, may the king and Haman come today to the banquet I've prepared for him." For them. The king said, "All, oh, hurry, hurry, get Haman so we can do as Esther has requested. So the king and Haman went to the banquet Esther had prepared. While drinking the wine, the king asked Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you, whatever you want, even half the kingdom will be done. Esther answered, This is my petition and my request. If I found favor in the eyes of the king and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and perform my request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet. I will prepare for them. Tomorrow I will do what the king has asked. Well, obviously here we got tension is is mounting in this scene as Esther patiently unfolds her plan. But what we... What we're really seeing here, though, is Queen Esther stepping out in bold faith. She didn't know how the king would have responded. I think she's already kind of expressed to us, the readers, what she might've been thinking, as well as to Mordecai. There's a really good chance that she was not going to be accepted, but she had identified with her people, and she was willing to now take bold steps of obedience and make the potential uh, costly act of mediating for them. She presses boldly into her mediator role. Esther's defining moment of boldness points us to to history's greatest defining moment of boldness. We're probably reluctant to see in the pagan King Ahasuerus, a type of God himself, but, we actually can see an albeit dim picture of grace and mercy. The Protestant reformer Martin Luther saw this in his interpretation of Psalm chapter two, verse nine, which is this, you, speaking of God's forever king, here in the short David and the long Jesus, you will break them with an iron scepter. Luther writes, this, speaking about the scepter, this is the rod before whose point the blessed Esther kissed. He saw a connection, albeit dim, between the pagan king and the ultimate accomplishments of his Messiah. On this, Karen Job writes, on the third day, the Persian king whose word was irrevocable law, extends the golden scepter to Esther, lest she die for coming into his presence unsummoned. Esther approaches the king and completes this gracious gesture by touching the tip of the scepter. Her safety in his presence is thereby guaranteed. This scene pictures the gracious act of a king who holds life and death power. Had God not extended the cross of Jesus Christ to the world, all would die in his presence. On the third day after the final judgment, transpired on the cross, Jesus Christ arose to imperishable life, guaranteeing safety to enter God's presence to all who reached out in faith to touch that cross-shaped scepter. With great boldness, with great faith, Jesus stood in the gap, taking on the full fury of God's wrath for our sins. Jesus asked in the garden, Father, if you were willing, take this cup, this cup of wrath away from me. But he was convinced, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Esther, after much fear, bravely says, if I perish, I perish. And she does bravely face the possibility of death to bring salvation for her people, but in the end, she does not. But Jesus, the greater mediator, faced the certainty of death to bring about salvation for his people. And in the end, he did. With boldness, Jesus walked into the crucible of the cross knowing death was certain. Amen. Hmm. All right, that's the fourth reality of a mediator, the boldness of a mediator. Well, here we are now. I think we've seen how how Esther points us to Jesus, the greater mediator. And, And now we can make legitimate, derivative connections to ourselves. By faith in Jesus, the great high priest, we are called and empowered to be priests in his service. Among several identities given to us in 1 Peter 2, 9, we are told that we are a royal priesthood so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Come on, believers are united to the great high priest, the greater mediator, Jesus Christ. And because of that union, we're called to the priestly work of proclamation. We're we're to proclaim to those around us, uh, believers and unbelievers alike, the praises of the one who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We, We are to point others to the great high priest. That is our proclamation. Whether it's through word or prayer, our priestly work is pointing others to the great high priest. And here's the good news. Because we have this identity in our union with Christ, the great high priest, we have in that union power to pursue proclamation. Not left on our own. Not only did he accomplish his priestly work, but now he is in us empowering us to to complete our priestly work in his service. Now, if we're gonna be priests in service of Jesus, we're gonna to need to identify with Jesus and his people. Esther had to come to a place where she would identify with her people and in so doing, and she was willing to take on the, the cost involved. She did imperfectly; took much convincing for her to do so Of course, Jesus in full faith identified with his people and with God. And and now, because Jesus identified with us and now empowers us to do the same, Jesus calls his people to identify with him. Matthew 10, 32 through 33 says, everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. To acknowledge means to affirm, to agree, to identify with. If we're going to follow Christ, if we're going to follow Christ and be priests in his service, we can't sit back in silence, hiding in the shadows of whatever camouflage we think we might have. We've got to make it known to others that we belong to him. We, we cannot be priests for proclamation without using words that identify ourselves with the great high priest. And that too may come with a cost. Like Esther, we can all struggle with fear and acknowledging Christ, fear of judgment, fear of being and fear of loss, promotion, job, family, friends, other Are areas in your life or particular people that you struggle to identify boldly and clearly before with Christ? Are you, are you tempted to hide in whatever camouflage that you might have? I mean, maybe conviction is setting, if, you, if that's you, I wanna encourage you that that is actually God's grace at work in your life. Amen. Amen. There, is, there is grace to Turn from fear and turn to faith. Yes. Turn to his empowering grace. This isn't a pull your bootstraps up. This is, this is turning to the empowerment that he already has waiting for you to do the work that he's called you to. Come on. Come on. There's empowering grace to do this. Oh, it's, it's motivating to think that one day that all those who publicly identified with Christ will stand before the Father in heaven and Jesus will publicly identify with them. But yes, maybe perhaps God has providentially put you where you're at to be a priest for proclamation in the service of Jesus to those that you are around. Have you considered that our obedience Is God's ordinary means to enact his extraordinary plan. What good news? Just as Esther wasn't the main character in her story, we are not the main character in our story either. God is. And he has providentially brought us into his story. And he is pleased to use us for the furtherance of his kingdom. And may we then, by his grace, yes and perfectly, point others to Jesus. As people see us, hopefully we're like windows where they sort of see through us and they see Jesus, the great mediator of his people. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this text so that we could see uh, a historical account of your Faithfulness in the past to produce uh, to provide a mediator for your people, yet imperfectly, and so it points us to the great mediator, the great mediator that you have provided for your people now, the mediator who who actually atones for and and makes amends uh, for the the hostility that exists between us and Holy God. And so that in its place, the mediation now brings peace. It brings reconciliation. But would you help us to enjoy this and to live in the good of this truth? Now forever, because of the mediation of Christ, we experience peace with you. Help us to not just hear these words and walk away from them, but to take them with us and to think and dwell on them in transformative ways for the week ahead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.